usually by this point of the retreat, you can usually see pretty clearly how habituated we are to go to our thinking mind to understand what's happening, to, to try to make sense out of this reality that we find ourselves in. And that's what thinking minds do. It, it, it tries to understand because we find ourselves, if we are really in touch with our experience, we find ourselves to be rather vulnerable. When we really feel into our experience, we may not feel so secure here. Things can seem somewhat out of our control and a lot of the time out of our understanding. Things just don't really make sense. But we try to make meaning. And it's a really natural part of being human as well is to try to make meaning and try to understand. And yet we usually rely on the data that is in our thinking minds. And sometimes we might find ourselves just going round and round and round and round again. And when we are present with our thoughts, they can seem um, sometimes rather repetitious, um, thinking about the same kinds of things again and again. Um, I think it was maybe my, one of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, who said, we really only think about ten things. You know, just, we just keep repeating, thinking about them, and just think about them in all different kinds of ways and shapes and forms. And there might be a sense that our experience doesn't feel very fresh. And, you know, it's sometimes when people come in and uh, wonder, they, they question where the freshness is in experience, and they really long for that or want that, that sense of something new or something uh, kind of pure in a way that doesn't feel old and conditioned and repetitive and sometimes maybe even a little rigid or contracted and tight. You know, we want, we want, and, and then we can get some kind of sense that we want a release. We want to be released from our experience. And, and it's really, I think, a release from our conditioned experience, that, that experience that feels so old in a way. And yet there's a part of ourselves inside that knows there's something that isn't old, that isn't dependent on the past. But we might be able to touch something that is entirely new. In fact, the word insight actually means something new. (laughs) You know, the insight into something that we've never seen before. An insight is uh, an aha experience. You know, we go, ah, yeah, that's how it is. And that doesn't necessarily come from some kind of fabricated, analytical, rational way of thinking about things. Although the insight may arise in some kind of conceptual formulation, but still it has a whole different quality to it. It has almost a sense of, of, of having broken through. We can feel that sometimes, like something broke or, or cracked. 
and, and something came through that, that crack. And that feels cool or fresh or, or new or there's some kind of way we feel a little freer or maybe even a little liberated when that insight arises. And it doesn't have to be a profound insight. It can be actually something very simple. You know, maybe, you know, when we sit down and eat something, uh, eat some food that we've eaten a long time, maybe a, a piece of broccoli, and we taste it in a way that we've never tasted it before. It actually has a flavor. It has a taste. And we can tell the way that it's curling on our tongue and the way it goes down the back of our throat and go, wow, there's a whole world of experience there in just tasting a piece of food. And that can be a kind of an insight, an insight that there's a whole other dimension of experience that maybe we miss a lot because we are so often trying to describe or think about or understand our reality through our thoughts. So here on the retreat, and one of the primary ways we direct the instructions is to encourage you to let go of your thoughts. To, when you see the thoughts arising, and when they start to, as I think John was saying last night, when you start to hop on that train of association that's taking you down a t- particular track to a particular destination, you know, you can uh, say no. You know, I'm not going to get on that train. And that's what we're really encouraging in the instructions, is just for a period of time, just for the the purposes of this retreat, see what happens if you disengage from your usual way of being through the mind, through the thought. Because there's the possibility of a whole nother dimension of being or a whole nother dimension of reality that we miss, that we don't really have access to. And it's not just a dimension. My sense is it's many dimensions. You know, we start touching into one and we go, oh yeah, that's it. And then we start to explore that and feel into that and then a whole other dimension opens up. It's like worlds upon worlds or galaxies upon galaxies. You know, one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, just uh, wrote a book last year called Space Cruiser Inquiry because of his own experience of his exploration, as if he's going out into space and exploring all these different worlds and dimensions and galaxies and planets, and there's so much to explore. But we can't do it through the thinking mind. That isn't the avenue, that isn't the tool, that isn't the the vehicle that will take us into the dimensions of the deepest part of our being, the truest part of our being. So we say, as a practice, see if you can let go. And that means my teacher, I had a lot of teachers, my other teacher, Joseph Goldstein, used to say, every thought, I had the same question that the woman had this morning about well, when the, when the mind is so open and clear, that's the best time to think. You know, that's like the best thoughts arise at that time. 
You know, a lot of, you know, maybe even a lot of understandings like, oh yeah, that truth fits with that truth and the, that factor on the Eightfold Path fits there and I can now see how wise understanding fits with wise intention and, you know, it like can get all clear. I used to go into Joseph in my interviews and I'd say, but what about these thoughts? <laughs> they seem like so, so crucial to hold on to and to try to put them together and make sense of things because I'm really touching reality now, really making sense of reality. And he would look at me, he's very kind of soft and balanced and quiet, and he'd say, even those thoughts, let go of those thoughts. Every corner, look in every corner where the, where the thoughts are con- congealing starting to manifest and to see what happens just as an experiment. Just see what happens if you let go. See what's there. See what that experience is when your thought isn't commanding, isn't dominating. The amazing thing is that there's still something there. That's what's so amazing. And I think, you know, people who don't really look at their own minds who may not even have a sense that there are dimensions of being, may just think it's all just thought, the way that I think about things, the way that I fabricate things. And there isn't really a sense of there being maybe a sense of something that we might be able to touch, to actually touch, like like with tangible touch, our experience in a more subtle way. So we need to empty our minds. This is a, um, from Ajahn Chah, one of the great Thai forest masters. When he was asked what greatest hindrance his students had, he said, opinions, views, and ideas about things. Their minds are filled with opinions about things. They are too clever to listen to others. It is like water in a cup. If the cup is filled with dirty, stale water, it is useless. Only after the old water is thrown out can the cup become useful. You must empty your minds of opinions. Then you will see. And we we know how difficult this is. You know, sometimes I get the sense that, you know, the, 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 the tendency to think and want to believe my thoughts is, is almost like a rubber band. You know, each time I pull away, it's like, like the rubber band that just pulls right back to the thought. You know, that the conditioning and the identification is so strong to want some kind of a way to understand reality, some place to be able to stand firmly and say, yep, I know, this is it, this is what's going on. It's like this. And we can do that for a moment, and that's what the practice is, to say, yeah, it's like this, for this moment. But what happens in the next moment? It may not be like it was in the last moment, and if we're still kind of holding on to that last moment, we're lagging behind reality. We're not staying current with the way things are. So our practice of mindfulness is asking us to see if we can actually be here, as Gil has been saying, be here with this 
experience. And we see that if we have a view or an opinion or a thought about it, we might be able to have that for a few minutes or maybe even a little longer, but then things change again. When we really feel into and sense into our experience what might have been true a few minutes ago or an hour ago may not be true right now. And, and perhaps one way we could talk about our exploration is to touch into truth, exploring truth, discovering truth. And that's a rather abstract word, truth. We can say, well, what's truth, you know? I've kind of given up thinking about what truth is, we might say to ourselves. But, but what's true right now? in this present moment. We hear that a lot. This present moment, here. So that we're not lagging behind our experience. And the mind lags. The mind's always lagging. You can even see it when you use mental noting. It's so interesting because sometimes people come into interviews and they say, even when I make a mental note, my, it's not about my experience in that moment because my experience has already changed. So, so even that mental note is as finely as we might be mindful and precise with our, with our noting and with our describing, it's already old. <laughs> it's already changed. So sometimes we can make our mindfulness so fine and so subtle and so precise that the words drop away because they don't even fit the immediate reality anymore. They can't even get close to the reality. It's like when we eat. Let's go back to that piece of broccoli when we're eating that piece of broccoli, we might say, yeah, the broccoli tastes, you know, a little bit like it has a little bit of a, a raw taste. It's a little bit crunchy and a little bit soft on the edges. But is that the experience? <laughs> is that what it's really like? So when we actually experience directly, we may not even be able to describe, to use words at all. And then we're touching something else. We're touching an immediacy, an aliveness, a a vitality, something that that doesn't feel old, it doesn't feel tainted. The the freshness, the sense of newness comes into our experience at that time. So there's still something It's not like we're trying to clear away when we let go of our thoughts and our concepts and our mind and we come into our meditative experience. We're not trying to get to this place of voidness or this place where where there's nothing happening anymore or some way that we we leave. You know, there's no we kind of feel like we're like floating in this vast ocean. Sometimes it may actually feel like that, but that's not what we're trying to, that's not what we're trying to make happen here. So there's something. 
And we're interested, what we're interested is exploring that something. What is it? What is there? What is our experience when we're not lost in our thoughts? When we're not caught up in our story of the past or plans and ideas of the future? What's there? Is there a possibility that maybe we're missing something? And maybe missing something only in the respect of missing something that is possible for us as human beings. Some potential, some capacity that we may be able to know and experience as human beings that we're only just beginning to find out about. Maybe the possibility for us as human beings is so far beyond what we could ever imagine. But we're just starting to touch into it, to explore, to find out. So we're still left with our experience. And our experience is actually only six experiences. I like to talk about this. I like to kind of throw that out and see how people react to it. In the whole of what's happening, it all breaks down to six experiences. Do you know what they are? (laughs) When we break it all down, anybody want to take a stab? The senses plus thinking. Yeah. The five senses... Seeing, tasting, touching, hearing, and smelling, and our thoughts about it. And all the experiences that are a little bit more like abstract or, you know, like spaciousness and light and energy and all that, it kind of falls into the category of, of, of touching, you know, the, the, ta- the tangible touch. We can kind of, it has a feeling and we can kind of touch it. So we experience everything through these five sense doors and then our thoughts about it. That's what makes us up. We have our mind, we have our body. The five senses through the body and then our mind, which is all thinking about it all. It all breaks down to that. So sometimes when we ask you to note, we say just to note what's happening. Thinking, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensation, feeling. You can break it down like that. And we start to get to our bare experience. It's the bare experience of just a sound or just the taste or just a feeling of the sensation in the body or just the knowing of the arising of a thought. Just that simplicity of our experience. And then along with those six experiences becomes another aspect to those experiences, which is called the feeling tone, or in Pali it's called Vedana. And every experience moves on a continuum from pleasant to unpleasant. So every sound will either be pleasant or unpleasant, or somewhere in between on that continuum, maybe kind of more neutral, or a, a sensation in the body will either be a pleasant sensation or an unpleasant sensation. And then there's all different levels of intensity on that continuum to very intensely unpleasant 
to very intensely pleasant. And our experience moves along that continuum, moment to moment to moment, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes somewhere in between or moving along that. And it's all changing very rapidly. Sights and sounds and tastes and smells and thoughts and feelings and sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. When we start to break it down, we can start to experience at that level of kind of the rawness or the bareness of reality, the way it actually is at that level. Now, where we run into trouble as human beings, and obviously this has been going on for about 3,000 years because this is what the Buddha taught. (laughs) It's not just sort of like our 21st century predicament. And I love reading the old texts for that reason because I go, wow, that's, you know, things haven't changed that much. (laughs) It's the same way it was 3,000 years ago when the Buddha had his awakening. The difficulty is, is that we don't like it when it's unpleasant. We don't like it. We don't want our experience to hurt, to be painful, to be uncomfortable, to be other than the way we'd like it to be. And so our sense of ourself, this is the sense of ourself, comes and says, no, I don't like it, I don't want it that way, I want it to be like this. I want my experience to feel like this, to look like this, I want this to make me be like this, I want, I want to be somebody who feels good and feels happy and has blissful experiences and my heart is open and I feel loving and I'm concentrated and my mind is steady and strong, that's what I want. And so then we find the mind craving the pleasant. The mind actually yearns for, craves for that pleasurable experience. And what happens in that craving for the lovable, as the Buddha says, the lovable and the gratifying, we are rejecting that which is painful and unpleasant and unsatisfying. So we find ourselves caught in the craving and the rejection. Craving, rejecting, craving, rejecting, moving forward, moving away, moving forward, moving away. And we can find our experience, we can actually feel like we're kind of in this washing machine or something, you know, just going back and forth, or maybe a dryer, I don't know what, just being thrown back and forth and back and forth between wanting what we want and not wanting what we don't want. And we can get so demanding and assertive and self-righteous and aggressive about the way we want things to be. And that's a whole continuum as well, where we find ourselves operating from, you know, clinging a little bit, you know, you know, it uh, doesn't matter so much, but I really want this, to really being angry and aggressive about the way things are. And so all based on this simple, at the bare reality, the simple kind of arising and passing of these 
six experiences and the feeling that arises around it, and, and then the whole overlay of the mind, the whole overlay of the ego, the sense of self, which comes into being through this wanting and not wanting, and then the confusion about what's true, what's, what is the true reality, which are called the three uh, afflictions of the mind, greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, hatred, and confusion, which make up the sense of self, who we take ourselves to be caught up in this. The difficulty is that it doesn't work, does it? <laughs> you know, we, we try to control our reality in such a way to try to get the conditions to, to be right, meaning pleasant and comfortable and gratifying, but it doesn't work. It keeps falling apart. We, our experiences keep changing and falling apart, changing and falling apart. And then when it falls apart, it's back in the continuum of somewhere along the pleasant and unpleasant, just moving back and forth and back and forth. And if this isn't seen, if there isn't some understanding around this, that's, that's our reality. It's just being pulled back and forth, back and forth, yanked this way and that way by the mind, wanting this, not wanting that. It doesn't work. I got this lovely email from my friend in Canada just a couple days ago. She had just sat six weeks at IMS. And um, she was in the Christmas spirit when she came home with her family, her children and grandchildren, and she wrote this to me. She said, So the latest from my eight-year-old grandson, Seth. After all the build-up and the anticipation... The opening of stockings and gifts, he was a bit moody and grumpy. I asked him, why? What, what, what are you feeling? And he said, it's all the presents. They take you up, and then they drop you. <laughs> Eight years old. <laughs> She said he really understood that he had been caught and that the presence couldn't deliver. Ah, well, he said, there's still one of the gifts that hasn't dropped me yet. There was still one that was giving him gratification. And then she said, we talked about how they can never really deliver real happiness, only short-term pleasure, and not even nearly as much of that as promised. And she says, it took me until the age of 50 to begin to understand that. (laughs) That's the way it is, you know. Things take us up, and then they drop us. That's it. So this is, you know, so the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha or the truth of suffering. And one of the aspects of the First Noble Truth is that it really acknowledges the truth of this suffering or the pain, this this unpleasant aspect of our life. That there is suffering, there is pain in life, that that is the truth. It's a noble truth of this reality, the way things are. And one of the 
instructions is to understand that, to acknowledge the truth that there is pain, there is suffering. We're not going to get away from it because we're in a human body and we're in a human mind. And the experience of being a sentient being, a human being, is painful sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. And so we're asked not to take it so personally, but yet that's what we do. We take our suffering very personally. You know, and a lot of times on retreats what happens is that people think that when there's some kind of dukkha, dukkha is the Pali word for the suffering or the pain, the painful aspect, is that when people take things personally, they think that they're doing something wrong that somehow they're not doing the practice right or the practice isn't going right or the retreat isn't going right or it's all my fault and I've got to find a way to fix it. I've got to find a way to make myself different so that it starts going the way I think it should go. My meditation should go the way I think it goes. My experience should go the way I think it goes. It's my responsibility to figure it out. And sometimes we can even go as far as thinking that we're wrong or I'm bad. You know, I'm, I'm, something's wrong with me I'm, or I'm fundamentally wrong. I'm fundamentally screwed up because I experienced this dukkha. And it can happen, you know, it can happen even when people have been practicing for a long time and they come on a retreat and it's just a different kind of retreat where the experiences are just maybe more flat, or there's more boredom, or there is uh, not so much concentration, a little bit more sleepiness, um, more distractedness. And then they'll say, boy, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm really doing something wrong. And can you help me figure out what I need to do right? Now, it's not to say that there aren't ways to make adjustments and ways to consider you know, shifting the practice a little bit, but it's, I'm point, I want to point out the personal aspect that we somehow take responsibility. We think it's our fault when the dukkha arises. I remember when I really started to understand the first noble truth that it wasn't all, the suffering wasn't all my fault. I felt, it was so liberating. I felt so liberated. It's like a whole weight went off of my shoulders. Oh yeah, that's just inherent in this life. There is suffering in this life. Otherwise, I was in so much blaming and anger and self-pity, so much self-pity, like, oh, woe is me. Why am I the one? I'm the only one who experiences all this suffering. It's, you know, everybody else is fine and everybody else is much more happy, but I'm the one who's so miserable. Woe is me. And I, I went through so much of that until I really understood, well, wait a minute. I think other people are going through this too. You know, maybe I'm not the only one. So one of the first steps in our practice is not to take things so personally, not to take our experiences, not only the suffering aspect, but also the blissful and the pleasurable aspect, maybe not to take it all so personally. And as we do that, we begin to have some insight into the selfless nature of experience that experience comes and it goes, it appears and it disappears all by itself. That perhaps we could just sit back and mind our own business 
and just let the show unfold. Maybe just step back just a little bit without being so invested in the way things are. I want to read this little story from Ajahn Sumedho, one of, the, one of our beloved monks and teachers from the um, Ajahn Chah forest tradition. He says, Sometimes insight arises at the most unexpected times. This happened to me while living at Wat Pa Pong. The northeastern part of Thailand is not the most beautiful or desirable place in the world with its scrubby forests and flat plain. This is when he was a monk in Thailand. It also gets extremely hot during the hot season. He was with Ajahn Chah during this time. We'd have to go out in the heat of the mid-afternoon before each of the observances days and sweep the leaves off the paths. There were vast areas to sweep. We would spend the whole afternoon in the hot sun, sweating and sweeping the leaves into piles with crude brooms. This was one of our duties. I didn't like doing this. I'd think, I don't want to do this. I didn't come here to sweep sweep the leaves off the ground. I came here to get enlightened. (laughs) And instead they have me sweeping leaves off the ground. Besides, it's hot, and I have fair skin. I might get skin cancer from being out here in the hot climate. I was standing out there one afternoon feeling really miserable, thinking, what am I doing here? (laughs) Why did I come here? Why am I staying here? There I stood with my long, crude broom and absolutely no energy, feeling sorry for myself and hating everything. Then Ajahn Chah came up and smiled at me and said, Wa Pa Pong is a lot of suffering, isn't it? (laughs) And he walked away. (laughs) So I thought, why did he say that? (laughs) And actually, you know, it's not all that bad. He got me to contemplate, is sweeping the leaves really that unpleasant? No, it's not. It's, it's a kind of neutral thing. You sweep the leaves and it's neither here nor there. Is sweating all that terrible? Is it really a miserable, humiliating experience? Is it really as bad as I'm, I'm pretending it is? No, sweeping is all right. It's a perfectly natural thing to do. And I don't have skin cancer, and the people at Wat Papong are very nice. The teacher is very kind, a kind, wise man. The monks have treated me well. The lay people come and give me food to eat. And what am I complaining about? And then he goes on to say, reflecting upon the actual experience of being there, I thought, I'm all right. People respect me. I'm treated well. I'm being taught by pleasant people in a very pleasant country. There's nothing really wrong with anything except me. I'm making a problem out of it because I don't want to sweat and I don't want to sweep the leaves. (laughs) Then I had a very clear insight. I suddenly perceived something in me which was always complaining and criticizing and which was preventing me from ever giving myself to anything or offering myself completely to any situation. So we look at our own minds. We look at our own minds to see what are we holding on to? What are we 
craving for that we think has to happen instead of what's happening? What are we rejecting in our experience that is absolutely intolerable, not okay? We start to really examine that, that movement of mind of towards and away, towards and away. I remember at one stage in my own practice where I just took that on as a practice. Just watching my own mind move towards something in some kind of hope that it was going to give me some kind of gratification. And then what I was rejecting because I thought that thing was going to do it for me. And I could just feel the movement. It's just, again, you know, that kind of toppling forward and then being thrown back and toppling forward and thrown back. I mean, the, the dizzying, it's almost dizzying and kind of unstabilizing when we really feel it. When we really start to sense into that experience of not fully being here with what's happening. It's only through that resting in to the presence, the present experience that we begin to find some stability. Real stability. Because we are starting to touch into an aspect of our innate beingness. Our true nature of our being, which has all that we are looking for. It has all of the qualities that we need to experience ourselves fully as human beings. As awake, alive, vital, free, energetic human beings. It's all right here, waiting for us to discover our capacity, our qualities that we have right here where we are. And as we start to touch into this presence, we start to gain access to, which we call in this tradition, to our heart, heart qualities, the heart as opposed to the mind, thinking mind. We begin to drop out of the thinking mind, and there's actually an energetic experience of dropping dropping down into the center, more the fullness of our beingness. It's, an, it's a tangible experience where we feel more centered. We feel more grounded. We feel more embodied. And we start to move in our lives from a different location than up here, than where our energy is often congealed and and fixated, which is the top of our head, it can often feel like that, which is so unstabilizing, especially if we're being pulled back and forth, back and forth, back and forth by our mind and the ideas and the images and the pictures that we have in our mind. As we start to drop and feel more into the presence of our beingness, we start to feel the qualities of our, our strength and our centeredness and our heartfulness, which manifests as caring and kindliness and compassion 
patience, generosity, kind of a generosity of spirit, even a quality of truthfulness or honesty in coming into contact, into meeting that actuality of our experience. And as we start to feel into those qualities of our being, we start to feel more who we are. It's like, you know, sometimes I feel more myself today. You know, I really, like when sometimes say, I'm not feeling myself today. <laughs> and what we mean by that is that there's some kind of disconnection going on. But sometimes say, yeah, well, I really feel good today. I really feel myself today. And that doesn't mean that we're now consolidated in the ego. It just means that perhaps we're touching something that feels more authentic, that feels more true, that somehow we're expressing ourselves in a more real and true way through those qualities of our nature, those qualities of our being, which we could say, when we sense into it, we say, yeah, that, that's more of who I really am. The way I'm expressing myself now feels more honest in some way, more true, than when I get caught up in my reactivity and my, my anger and my aggressiveness and my, my greed. No, that doesn't feel so good. I don't like it. And then I, you know, judge myself, and I, and I don't like myself when I'm like that. But, but when we come into the feeling of being more open and, and full in our being, we like it. There's a reason we like it. It feels really good. And it's not a kind of goodness that necessarily is arising on that continuum of pleasant-unpleasant, that changing experience. But now we're touching into something that feels a little bit more core. Core in our, in our nature itself, which feels good. Which even has a quality of joy. A quality of lightness. A quality of openness and spaciousness. That, that just, it, 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 it seems, yeah, this is, this is true. This is, my, this is getting closer to my being, who I really am. And then when the thoughts come, you know, well, who do you think you are? <laughs> you're getting up on your high horse. You're have, you know, you think you're really getting somewhere. You know, perhaps from this steady grounded place, we can see, oh yeah, that's just that aspect of my psyche that wants to take control of my experience and undermine the goodness of who I am, and I'm not going to pay attention to that. And some of the fierceness, you know, the, the strength of our, of, our, of our wisdom can come through, and kind of like Manjusri's sword, in the Tibetan tradition they have these deities, and one is Manjusri with the sword that just cuts through the ego. It's a very powerful God, deity, that cuts through all that is false. All about our experience that isn't true, isn't real. We start to gain access to that wisdom, to that strength, to that knowledge, that understanding, 
it has a discriminating quality, an, an aspect that can discriminate between what's true and what's false, what's real and what's inauthentic. And we get, begin to know that, begin to see that as our mindfulness gets stronger, concentration gets stronger, we see it. Oh yeah, that's false. That judging mind, it's just judging mind. It's just trying to undermine me. It's, it's being mean. It's being critical. It's being hateful. I'm not going to listen to that because I feel into something that feels more steady, that feels more collected, feels more whole. And at some point, it, we start to feel that shift. Something starts to shift. So rather than listening and believing the small thinking mind so much of the time, we find that we're actually starting to listen and to feel and experience more of what's not thinking mind, but still is manifesting in some very real way through our being, through our nature, that is more good and kind and loving and nurturing and caring and compassionate wise. And, and that's when the trust begins to build, the confidence begins to build in who we really are. I know that. I'm starting to know that. We can, we, and we keep trusting it. And the confidence builds and the strength builds. And that's as we, how we progress in that way and get stronger and more steady and more confident as we walk the path. There's still a lot of work to do. And it's really when we feel more settled in the fullness of our being more of the time that we have more access to the qualities that will really support the investigation and the journey on the path. We have, we, we have more strength and more capacity to face more of the challenges and the conflicts and the difficulties because it seems like, and certainly from my experiences, they don't actually stop. <laughs> they seem to continue. The difficulties seem to come rather fast and furious. You know? And yet there's a sense of having some capacity that maybe I didn't have 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Now I can meet those challenges in a way that I couldn't before. And I have the faith and the trust that that strength will, will, will get even stronger and, and, and more expanded, that I will be able to face more challenges. A few years ago, I had the insight that the practice really was about developing the capacity to meet life to meet life in all of its challenges, all of its pains and sorrows and sufferings, as well as the amazing uh, uh, joys and, 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 and ecstatic experiences that can happen as well, to increase the capacity to meet life. That's how I see the practice. Drawing on and strengthening 
the qualities of our nature. which we often call our wisdom. The wisdom. That this is a path of deepening wisdom. So as we start to understand that, perhaps our momentary experiences may not be quite as important. And sometimes we feel good, sometimes we don't feel so good, sometimes we're grumpy, sometimes we're happy. You know, it just constantly changes. But something else is happening. Something else. We're, we're learning how to meet those changing experiences and all of their intensities and subtleties. I think this is from the Buddha. Mere suffering is, but no sufferer is there. The deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is found. Nirvana is, but not the person who enters it. The path is, but no traveler on it is seen. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.